0: To a fires touchdown, Miami. Waddle snuck into the end zone of Miami. Boy, tight throw, tight window. They had to get that touchdown on that play to get it.
1: What is up, Dolph fans, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins how's it going everybody it's a victory Monday edition of the drive time podcast I am your host Travis Wingfield and as always I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football and on today's show you know what time it is win, win. Win, 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 win. that's what the Miami Dolphins did for the sixth consecutive game that's six back-to-backs for the Miami Dolphins. Six wins in a row. The Dolphins overcome a 10-point deficit and put together a game-winning drive in the fourth quarter en route to that sixth victory in a row. We've got takeaways, some additional favorite moments of the game, plus a very special segment for you guys from the post-game show. You will not want to miss that. From somewhere in South Florida, this is the Drive Time Podcast. That's another
0: Miami Dolphins
1: so we're going to go ahead and get to the five takeaways right off the top for the Dolphins Sunday, 31-24 to victory, their sixth consecutive victory, this one over the New York Jets, a victory that, that vaults Miami into the all-time series lead in the regular season, 56 for Miami, 55 for the Jets. 57 if you count AJ Dewey and the Dolphins' 1982 playoff performance back to 2021 and Miami's sixth consecutive victory. Number one takeaway from this is just the Dolphins overcoming some obstacles in route to this victory. Now, I know you'll look at the and this was kind of something that Coach Flores' message was all week long that people were asking him questions about the playing a three and ten football team at this time of the year and to expect the unexpected and all the things that go into an underdog coming into a late game in late December when their playoff hopes or the potential qualification for postseason play, whatever you want to call it, when that's no longer within their reach, what type of effort, what type of game do you expect to get? And I think it was very important to note that this was a divisional opponent who played us tough last time, who you can expect a tough game from, from that head coach, that his team is going to play hard. And coach mentioned that all week long. And so you got that effort from the Jets. I mean, how many... They ran a hook and ladder in the end of the second quarter. All kinds of end-around plays and different trickeration and double passes and throwing the ball back to Zach Wilson for a downfield pass or him getting out of a sack and peeling back across the formation and throwing it all the way across the field to Ryan Griffin who rumbles for like 25 yards. They had... All the stops pulled out in this game and Coach Flores talked about it post-game about how those are things you just can't really prepare for. You have to stay true to your rules and maybe it took Miami a little bit of time to overcome that plan. The Jets threw at them with the kitchen sink just dumping everything out there and what a great plan that was for Jets offensive coordinator Mike LaFleur to get them out to that hot start and Miami was sluggish in their own right offensively and defensively against all that. thought tackling was a bit of an issue early on but That's just one element of it. How about the fact of what the entire NFL really went through this week? And of course, pretty much every team dealt with distractions of some type of magnitude this week in the NFL. But that doesn't mean the Dolphins are impervious to it, too. So you go from not knowing who you're having in certain situations. I mean, Jalen Waddle shows up on the COVID list late week after... He's already part of the game plan offensively, and you wonder what kind of an impact that could have in terms of how the Dolphins came out of this game early on when you intend to have, you know, the NFL's second leading reception man within your game plan. All of a sudden, you take him out, and you have to replace that that significant portion of your offensive plan. Defensively, no Javon Holland and everything that he does. I mean, great on Nick Needham. Seriously. So impressed by Nick Needham's ability to go back and just play a different position. He's done it his whole entire career. Selfless, selfless player. The exact kind of guy you want in that room, in this organization to help you fill out when certain guys aren't there. That's so valuable for Nick Needham. But without Javon Holland... A lot of those blitz packages that he's been part of, or a lot of the different looks they can show, or the ability to flip out and go from him down in the A-gap to all the way out in the single high post. Like, he just does so much for this defense, a signal caller in the middle of this defense, and a versatile playmaker at that. You go down those two guys after kind of expecting to have them, at least heading into the game plan, that's tough to overcome. And the Dolphins were able to do that both offensively and defensively. The running back room, having no clue what's going to happen there when you're basically anticipating until Saturday that Gaskin and Achmed are both on the list as well. They come off and they're active for the game. Gaskin gets some, some run here and a really good carry in that game winning drive as well. But there was some uncertainty there and the Dolphins running game didn't show any effects, but I'm just that I was so impressed by the Dolphins to ability to weather that storm and go down on the scoreboard with all that going on and to fight back and come out of the locker room and play their best football when they had to with their backs up against the wall. Let's go ahead and hear from Brian Flores on his football team, which he felt was a little bit rusty early on.
0: You know, I think, you know, I think as a team, we were rusty in a lot of areas, you know, some penalties, some missed tackles, um, you know, so we're not going to put it on, on, on Tua. Um, obviously, he has some, some plays he, w- he he wants back, but, you know, he battled back uh took us right back down the field after, you know, the turnover uh, and, and punched it in you know, at the end, gave us the, uh, you know the winning score, the winning point. So, you know, we'll make the corrections. Uh, those, those. So it's good to we'll make those mistakes in then we'll win the ball game as well. Uh, but he'll work
1: hard to work to learn from. You. So there you go. Um, There's coach talking about. He was asked about Tua Tunga by Loa specifically, but I wanted to go ahead and play the sound clip because he talked about the team in general being rusty, which I think we all saw in that seventeen to seven start. Takeaway number two, Duke. How about the performance? he put on at Hard Rock Stadium in the first ever game in a Dolphins uniform at the stadium that he grew up wishing he would get a play out one day. At age 28, that dream came to fruition. Boy, they love him in that building. The Duke chants were out all game long, and he loves them too. What a great story this was, a great homecoming for Duke Johnson. The first Miami Dolphin 100-yard rusher this season, that's phenomenal. And I talked about this on the last Jets postgame game Drive Time Victory Monday Recap Edition. It's a long name. I talked about how the fact that I liked the way he ran, the way he fell forward and got extra yards when he could... Boy, did he do that in this game. The effort runs, both of those touchdown runs, he stacked up shy of the goal line. Didn't matter. He finished off the run and pushed it into the end zone and also got on the offensive line for helping. That's not a single man effort. The offensive line and the running back help make that happen. And that was the case all day long. Getting off tackles, even in the short yardage runs where he stacked up behind the line, he finds a way to progress and get across the, the chains and move the, move the sticks and get first downs with the effort runs, getting out wide on so many of those toss sweeps where he showed you a bit of his speed and urgency, but the stiff arm he showed, the strength and the stiff arm to put guys who are chasing him and pursuing him with that angle to the sideline and he puts them on their back with the stiff arm, gosh, that's impressive. And you consider how it complements the passing game and the short passing game for Miami. I mean, it just adds another element of efficiency. The the fact you can work off of the run game to give more in the running game off the run pass options and how that complements Tua and this offense when a Jalen Wadwell does come back. So Duke finishes with 107 on the ground on 22 rushes, a pair of touchdowns, and he adds 20 more on a catch. And Miami ran the football 42 times today for 183 yards. They outgained the Jets in total 379 to 228 yards. Duke Johnson, what a revelation he was. And in his post-game press conference, he talked about how his high school is about 10 minutes up the road, how he lived about 15 minutes away from where Hard Rock Stadium is located. He also talked about how his role could be this today. It could be something else tomorrow. thought he spoke very well in terms of the team regards. And he just said it meant a lot growing up in the area to play football there. And he also said that it reminded him of his college days, and he really enjoyed that. So that was awesome to hear. I wanted to go ahead and play some audio here from Tua, on the Dolphins running back Duke Johnson. I mean, it's very cool.
0: Me and Duke actually live in the same estate, which is even cooler. And I didn't even know that uh, until he brought it up uh, for Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think it's it's super cool, especially with the the crowd. I I think I heard the crowd saying Duke, you know, with a loud Duke. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. And um, you know, I, I I know he enjoyed it, uh, but. You know, just knowing the person that he is, he's very, you know, grateful for the guys out there as far as the linemen and whatnot. So I'm I'm happy for him.
1: So there you have QB1 on RB1. And speaking of Tua, takeaway number three, after a very short break, a tale of two Tua's. You know, early in this game, I thought he was just off from the things that you've grown accustomed to with ball placement, quick decisions, on time with those decisions, the things that really have made him they made him a top prospect that made him a high draft pick and made him a quarterback that's won 11 of his 18 starts now here in Miami. But early on, I mean, the interception was in between a couple of receivers. I think Devontae Parker thought that ball's so much over my head. Maybe I don't want to interfere with it. And he kind of just let it go by because it didn't look like it was to him at all. Maybe it was. Maybe it was to Gesicki, who was over the top, but it would have been short to him. So just kind of a no-man's-land throw that wasn't very good. And then putting the ball in harm's way a couple of times. There was a throw over the middle to Mike Gesicki that got popped up that just was not not typical of Tua in terms of his proficiency with which he protects the football and the accuracy with which he usually throws with. The deep shot to, to Albert Wilson. I talked about it being late. In, the, uh, in my tweet after the throw happened during the game, and a lot of you said, yeah, that's an underthrown ball. Yeah, it is. And I think there's a couple of elements that go into that because on that concept, you see Parker kind of runs a corner out to help kind of clear a potential deep post defender or maybe just to kind of clear space for Wilson to get over the top. And... Parker's back is to the quarterback, and it looked like Tua was kind of looking in that direction. It looked to me like a low to high read, where you're trying to decipher underneath and then possibly spring one deep. And so when he's kind of on the move and late into the progression, the defense rotates a certain way, and all of a sudden Albert Wilson's 35, 40 yards down the field. By the time the ball's out, and all of a sudden you have to launch one, you know, 65 yards. And we know what Tua is in terms of his game and his skill set. And that's a tough throw to make on the, on the move, roll in that direction. So. I think it was more about timing than it was anything else, which results in the underthrown ball. But, you know, in terms of we talk about what the offense had to overcome in this game. And, you know, I I talked about it in the first takeaway that Waddle was set to play this game until he goes on the COVID list late in the week. It's tough to adjust to a guy that practiced with you for at least a couple days throughout the course of the week. And then all of a sudden just isn't there. And so I just thought there was some curious play where he wasn't seeing it right. Thought he was late and took the wrong option on an unusual number of times. And again, not to mention the accuracy and he's a rhythm thrower. And that's, I think that's pretty pl- uh, plain and simple. You see him at his best when he can get into a rhythm, get into a tempo and kind of get things going where he's just catch rock and throwing and feeling it. So when you start the game with two runs and then a failed kind of RPO exchange between he and the running back, that's no throws in that drive and an, uh, almost turnover. There's no rhythm. You come back on the first play, throw the football, it gets picked. There's no chance to develop a rhythm there. And it wasn't until that corner route must have been, was that? It had to have been early second quarter to Devontae Parker, a corner route. And I thought that was a gorgeous throw because you see there's an underneath defender and like a cover two look where he sinks up to the flat receiver. And then Parker has the corner with the safety out leveraged to the outside. And this is what Parker does such a good job at. He puts his body into the defender and basically gives his quarterback all that extra space to throw to. And Tua took advantage of it, puts the ball in a perfect spot. Parker throws the arms out there, hauls that thing in. He That really got him going, I thought, in this game. We then later on the next drive saw the third and six bucket shot over the top to Isaiah Ford, which was a great route and a great throw after Ford stacked him and a good job staying on top of that route to look over the top of the shoulder and bring that thing in. That was a handoff too, a really good throw. And then on those opening two drives to start the second half, I thought he was fantastic. Just right down the field, zip, zip, zip down the field, bing, bong, bing, bing, and you're in, picking up big third down conversions. On those two possessions, Miami possessed the ball for 11 minutes and 51 seconds combined. They ran 20 plays and they chewed up 146 yards and put up 14 points on the board while the defense would do their thing for a few plays and then go get their rest. That's such a complimentary aspect or attack and way of playing football that works so well. It's tough to lose when you play like that, when the offense is efficient and effective and the defense gets off the field that quickly. Then you come back to Tua, the mistake on the interception. I I don't, you know, I'll have to look at it on the tape and, the throw outside to Hunter Long. It's he's made that throw a million times and hasn't been in danger really at all. And it just gets picked and ran back. I don't know what the result or the cause or whatever, but you know, we'll talk to the players throughout the course of the week. And I'm sure Tua talked about it post-game as well. I didn't get a chance to hear if he did or not. But you just can't happen like that can't happen, right? Up seven late in the fourth quarter. Can't be throwing interceptions in that spot. And then you come back in the touchdown throw on the ensuing drive. I thought that that throw to Parker was on the back shoulder a little bit. He gave him a chance, and it was a good call by Tua and Parker. You kind of saw them doing hand signals because the Jets left all kinds of room for Parker to have a two way go and a potential fade or a potential slant inside. And they took the slant, the ball's a little behind, but what a catch and run by Parker to get that thing on the back shoulder, turn up field, and get it in for the touchdown. And, you know, I think you kind of saw what the Waddle's absence in the offense meant, especially down in the red area, because. It was basically fades and corners and touch throws into the end zone when the Miami got down there, right? So without the ability to really kind of hit those snap throws like we saw on the hookup touchdown against the I think it was the Giants a couple of weeks back, all the separation that Waddle creates in that area gives you both the option for those hookup type routes. Uh the ability to beat man coverage, some of the rubs become more in play, some of the jet motion stuff, the pop passes all becomes more in play. And that complements the big bodies of a Devontae Parker, of a Mike Siki, And it gives you multiple ways to score down in that area. And I think that that was something we noticed in this game. But it's still nice when you have Devontae Parker who can get those two-way goes, can get some fade routes. He almost caught one, gets the toe tap out of bounds just by a little bit. But it kind of shows you how this Dolphins offense is constructed and how important Waddle can be in the kind of element of the offense that he occupies. But, you know, back to Tua again. All in all, after the biggest mistake he made all game and one of the bigger mistakes he's made this season really with the football, he answers back with a 75-yard drive right after that. And that's how you win. That's how you get to 11-7 and seven as a starter in his NFL career. But it was really a team effort in there as well. So good on the Dolphins for getting that job done. Good on Tua for finding a way to get over those mistakes and to win the football game in the end. And so the final note there is that in a game where I don't think it was anywhere near Tua Tungavailoa's best stuff, He still winds up with a couple of touchdowns and a 75.5 passer rating. Not too bad for a quote-unquote bad game, right? There you go. And takeaway number four, a tale of two pass rushes. And I wanted to touch on every single player here, but this goes back to kind of the first takeaway, talking about the Jets' ability to kind of keep the Dolphins' edge and their entire rush in general at bay throughout the course of this game. And that's what they did with some of the misdirection. And you kind of give them a a half count to make them take a lateral step and just put some uncertainty in their mind. Think about retracing some of those screens, some of those double passes, trying to find guys leaking down the field in the flats or out to the corner or a tight end peels off, whatever the case may be. Again, good on the Jets for that first half plan. But once it came down to the offense executing and putting the defense in position where the Jets offense had to go to more traditional true drop back passing, That was when the game changed, and we just saw it from a number of guys. Andrew Van Ginkle, he continues to have these games where he just pressures the opposing quarterback and makes these impact plays weekly without actually getting the splash stat in that particular call on the sack or the fumble, the pass breakup, whatever the case may be. He's finding a way to impact the game just by speeding up the quarterback's clock and also helping his friends get to to the quarterback for big hits and for big sacks. I thought the athletic ability he displayed on that one drop back where Wilson reversed fields a couple times and thought that the second time was going to get him clear of number 43 and the blonde hair flowing at the back of the helmet, but it didn't, and he was surprised to see 43 right there. I love using this analogy on Twitter, <laughs> talking about like, oh, you know, Raekwon Davis just threw a blocker all the way up to Jupiter. On that play, Andrew Van Ginkel truly ran to Boca Raton and back. Just his ability to get all over the football field and the mentality this defense has to chase the football, the nose for the football, and always be pursuing the football that's kind of how you breed a takeaway mentality. As long as you always run to the football, you're going to put yourself in position to make plays. And Andrew Van Ginkle exemplified that in this game. He had another good game, which just brings his good game streak pretty much alongside their sidecar with the Miami Dolphins' six-game winning streak. Emmanuel Ogba continues to tear it up. Sack in the game. He got another pass deflection at the line. He leads all defensive linemen in that statistic. He also recovered a fumble. And I believe he, did he get credit for that sack with Jerome Baker? I keep forgetting. I know he was in there for a sack at one point in the game, but I know Seth was talking in the post-game show about possibly not getting the sack. I'm just talking to delay my time right now so I can find the stats myself as I pull up Emmanuel Ogba on the post-game tracker. He did get credit for a sack. So a sack and a fumble recovery, and again, the pass defense. He continues to just have a fantastic second season here with Miami after a very good first year with the Miami Dolphins. Speaking of first years, first year pros, Jalen Phillips. You know, he had that missed sack that turned into the one where Bacon Ogba teamed up on the quarterback there. And man, he just continues, again, to find ways to get after the quarterback. He's he's been really good in his pass rush. Didn't get the sacks today, but he was consistently in the backfield there, helping all those guys, and they all help each other stay fresh with those edge rushes. So he continues to make him, you know, make make some headway here in his rookie season. Then a bit of a position change going up front. You know, Zach Sealer. This guy on a, a down-for-down, pound-for-pound basis is such a consistent player. He's so efficient. And it was awesome to see him get a chance to make a splash play today. That strip sack was a true grown man play, which is really the only kind of plays number 92 makes out there. You discard, discard the guard, chuck him to the side, and then the running back's like, all right, well, guess that means I'm up in the A-gap. Guess that means it's time for me to go try to challenge this monster alligator wrestling dude. Like, good luck. And so he steps up and Zach Sealer just runs right through him. That's not a matchup anybody's going to win in this league and gets right on Zach Wilson as he goes to throw a big strip sack, a huge play in that game for Zach Sealer, and Ogba, of course, falls on it. And then Jerome Baker, a couple of sacks in this game. You know, the closing speed that he displays to the quarterback always shows up. He is so quick and takes really good angles at the quarterback and the way that he reads protections and kind of helps himself get clean on those rushes He's in charge of so much on all the multiple packages this defense displays. And just so you guys know, like they're in football, especially in this type of a defense, there's a catalog of different games, stunts, twists, slants, and two, two-man stunt operations. You know, me and Juice always talk about the TE stunt on the post-game show. Like there are so many variations of different things that have different names and different rules depending on the offense's look. He's just such a key cog in what they do. And again, when he's making the splash plays to go along with it, let's go, Bake. That's all we need. Christian Wilkins. Where do we start with Christian Wilkins? We talk about the stack and shed clinic he puts on every single week, the tackles for loss, the pressures or the pick stunts where he clears lanes for his teammates. (laughs) Well, fortunately, I think this week it's pretty easy. I think you start right here.
0: Or long in motion, play action fake. Yeah, and throw, it's touchdown flag, though. We got a flag, and this may be a. Uh, <laughs> and Wilkins does the Lambo leap into the stands. They may need a crane <laughs> to get him out of there. Defense number 98. results in a touchdown. They finally got him a score. <laughs> How about? Oh boy! Now that's a celebration going go. on right there. <laughs> that is. Hey, Bo, that's great. the greatest 300-pound celebration of all time. Well, well, let me tell you what, that big man almost knocked down Roger Goodell when he was drafted. <laughs> after he got a touchdown, you didn't think he was just going to prance off the field alone, did you?
1: And into the stands he went, and you talk about chest bumping Roger Goodell. It was not an easy job for those fans to pluck him back out of the stands and put him back onto the field. Now, the reporter after the game talked about how he likes to talk about putting his athletic ability on full display. Christian Wilkins cut him off before he could finish his question. And then talked about the celebration. Uh crowd, the worm, the windmill. You said, you said full display.
0: Um, I was holding back, honestly. You ain't see. You ain't see me at a at a wedding or at a Bob first, nothing like that. Then that's where you. That's when the moves are on the full display. Um, but it was definitely exciting. It was cool. I was happy. I was make a, able to make a play for my team. But yeah, I don't know how I squeezed all that in the forty seconds or to however long the play clock was or whatever the heck. Because I felt like I was going for a while. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Glad I can make a play for my team.
1: I mean. There he is. (laughs) I want to see one of those weddings or bar mitzvahs. But first of all, how many of you remember the touchdown that was nullified a year ago against the Bengals? I I tweeted it out, so go check out my timeline at Wingfield NFL. It's up there. On that particular celebration, he goes flip into the end zone, goalpost dunk, he daps up all of his buddies with chest bumps, then some dance I'm not really familiar with, an Irish jig of some sort. Then he chest bumps Raquan Davis and then goes to a somersault, hand in the air, run back to field goal team because you're on field goal team, big boy. Now again, that one was taken off the board. So the one that counted is the winner. I mean, the leap into the crowd, phenomenal. The minute he went to the worm, that's when he won for me, but he wasn't done there. Nope. He won some more with the breakdance windmill spin out, then holds the pose. Christian, please never, ever, ever stop being you, my man. And so the ferocious pass rush is takeaway number four. Five sacks in that second half that smothered the Jets' offense. No offensive points in that second half of the Jets. And it wasn't just the rush, because to have rush, you got to have coverage too, which brings us to takeaway number five, the quiet things that no one ever knows. Xavier Howard, we heard his name on the Jets' first touchdown on a potential tackle around Braxton Berrios around the pylon that didn't happen. And then we never really heard from him until a coverage attempt in the late third quarter, maybe the early fourth. We'll have numbers from the Tuesday Rewind podcast and just how many times that he and Byron Jones were targeted and how many coverage snaps they played and how many catches they gave up for how many yards. But I don't remember those guys giving up a whole heck of a lot in this game. Byron was in good coverage pretty much all day long. And the quiet things that no one ever knows is the name of an emo band's album from the early 2000s. Their name is brand new and it's a good record. And the reason I call this takeaway the same name as their record was because you just rarely hear about those guys as they go about their way shutting down opposing wide receivers. It's fun to watch every single week. So those are your five takeaways. Got a few more things I want to touch on before the outro and the post-game show segment, but first, a quick break. So this one's not a takeaway. We talked about it as well in the offensive uh, portion the two a breakdown there that the Devonte parker effect is real he caught four of his eight targets in this game and the big go-ahead touchdown in this game as well and totaled 68 yards in the game and you know i just watch him play and there are just things that he does that are valuable and we see it game in and game out and i just also think that when you've got him and waddle together and the completely different style of players they are that's when the like the full playbook can really get cranking. We talked about separation versus size in the end zone, and that kind of works for the course of the football field. They're both a threat to run slant routes. Waddle does all the motion stuff. Parker runs some of the slants that work off that motion. Uh, you know, Parker did a great job in this game of helping the offense get enough to win the game. But again, I, I just I watch him play independently and I watch Waddle play independently, and it makes me want to see them back on the field together hopefully very soon here. Thought Mike Gasicki had some big catches. We didn't talk about him uh, in the earlier part of the podcast, but he continues to have a couple of big third down catches every week, it seems. How about Isaiah Ford catching three passes for on three targets for 51 yards? And 27 of those came on a third and six play where, like we talked about it already, stacks a defensive back, throw goes right over the top into the bucket. That speed out on third down on that first go ahead drive, you know, that went into the fourth quarter. That was a big time catch and a big time route. From two uh from two to Ford there. And then another one on a second long where he catches one just shy of the sticks. Another whole shot from Tua uh, where Isaiah Ford's the target there. So a big day for Isaiah. And then on the offensive line, just wanted to mention them real quick. We'll get a good look at them on the tomorrow on tomorrow's podcast. But I thought there was some nice push there in the running game, especially down around the end zone. And then a couple more guys here, Brandon Jones. You know, that that sack that the Dolphins missed on third down, I think it was Justin Coleman, and then maybe Adam Butler had a shot at him in space, and he's athletic as hell, so I'll give him credit for that. But after missing that sack, it was kind of a deflating moment for Brandon Jones to come right back and he gets Wilson in his crosshairs and gets him to the ground for a negative eight. Thought that was a big time play in the game to put up by second and eighteen, which helped the defense get off the field. And then Michael Pilardi, I thought, was very good in this game once again. Three big punts for him from the Dolphins punter. So the out of town scoreboard was pretty good today. Um, essentially, here's what I think you're looking at in the AFC. The North ideally has one one team that goes the division champion. The Ravens, Browns, and Steelers all have tough routes. The Bengals and Browns feel like the best options there. You know, the Ravens would be better as a, a wild card contender at ten wins for obvious reasons. Out west, the Chargers they're probably going to get in. They're eight and six. They're playing really good right now but they would need to lose two of their final three, and that's with Houston, Denver, and Las Vegas on the schedule. And the latter, Las Vegas, with seven losses, needs one more loss. They play Cleveland, Indy, and the Chargers. Then the East and the South have this or route where this or that can happen. Starting in the South, you need the Colts to lose two against the Cardinals, Raiders, and Jaguars, or the Titans to lose next week against the 49ers, they play Miami in week 17 or that's one option either of those two can happen or out in the east the Patriots lose the game to the Bills next week and that's another area where things could get a little bit more interesting in the AFC all right that's going to be my Monday victory Monday recap edition of the drive time podcast here stay tuned after the outro for our post game show segment Seth and OJ and I had a special guest. In the meantime, you all please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating, leave us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at WingfieldNFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank podcast. They have Jed Weaver diving in the tank this week. The YouTube channel for all of our media availabilities and Dolphins today, as well as MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up, Caroline, Daddy's Coming Home. We got a special guest calling into the show right now. Go ahead and welcome in Jason Taylor, Hall of Fame, All Time Legend, Miami Dolphin. JT, you there, man? I'm here, guys. What's going on? What's up, JT? Seth, go ahead. Talk to your guy.
0: Well, I got to apologize to the boss. (laughs) I was ready for. (laughs) Just go, go ahead. I I was, you know. JT's been sitting listening to the whole show, and the last thing he wants to do is listen to me for two hours. So (laughs) I'm sorry for keeping you on hold so long, boss. But I appreciate you hanging in there with us. No, nah, man, you told me this morning because I couldn't make it <laughs> to the stadium because of some health things going on, and that that you know I do the post game show, do a little piece of the pre game show. So you have me sitting here since four oh three, <laughs> waiting for the phone to ring, <laughs> and, and you left me hanging. But it's fine; it, it's going to reflect in your, in your paycheck next oh, I'm year. Sure <laughs> I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Trust me, I'm dreading this money, baby. I've been on, I've been sitting here for two hours, <laughs> I, I, guys, I know what his rate is, and I do not want to have. <laughs> So, Jason, let's talk a little bit about what happened in the first half defensively and what happened second half defensively. What do you see the change and the difference that took place with that Dolphins team? Well, I really thought it was a couple factors. And, and you know, some people are talking about, you know, the, the Dolphins came out flat and they weren't ready to go and whatnot. or Defensively, they were a little conservative. But I think it, to me it was twofold. Number one, and it sounds crazy because he's so young, Javon Holland was out. And I think what Javon Holland brings to this team and does defensively for them, in in their pressure package, also when coverage wise, and whether he's a single high safety or he's down in the box, I think he does so much already at such a young age. So, you know, they they count on him, rely on him, and they and they trust him to to carry those responsibilities. So him not being in there, I think made a big difference. And then also, you know, you know, no matter how bad a team may look, and you know, or how tough of a season they're having, it, it's still the New York Jets. You know, and it's, it's a division foe. You know, they, they, you know, their fan base, I think more so than the players anymore don't like the Dolphins. You know, they, there's this, there's this rivalry thing that's still sitting out there and they want to come to Miami and, and play spoiler and, and beat the Dolphins. So they came out, and I give them a lot of credit. They came out with a lot of energy. They played hard. They played well. They made plays. You know, they put the, the Dolphins in some tough positions and created some turnover. So, I thought that was that was a thing early on. And then defensively in the second half, I thought, I thought the Dolphins got more in a rhythm, understood what the Jets were trying to do offensively and, and, and pressured them a bit more. So, you know, as much as people don't want to hear it, I think you got to give the Jets a little credit for coming out and being ready to play and, and Zach Wilson really handle, handling the game well in the first half.
1: JT, to, to that point, you mentioned you know the Jets kind of pulled out all the tricks in this game, and I, I, it has to have something to do with the fact that they just wanted to ruin our playoff chances and, and go beat their rival. And not just that, but Juice mentioned this too, take the all-time series lead in the Dolphins and Jets rivalry. Now Miami has the 56-55 to 55 lead in that game. Do you think that kind of had something to do with the fact that Miami's pass rush didn't really get much going early? And then was that what did you see with the five sacks in that second half? Well,
0: I mean, I thought the rush was, was fine early on. They didn't necessarily get him down, mm-hmm. you know. But remember, you're not playing Joe Flacco. They played Joe Flacco up in up in New York a few you know, a few weeks ago or whatever. You know, Zach Wilson obviously moves around a lot more, can, can extend plays and can get a little off schedule. But you know, the the, the Jets want to play spoiler. They, you know, there's a lot of things people could say. Oh, they want to play spoiler. They want to win the series. You know, go ahead in the series lead or whatever it is. At the end of the day, guys, I, I'm a firm believer, and you know, I think Juice will tell you these are, these are some of the most competitive people on the face of the earth. They don't want to go out there and get their asses kicked. They don't want to go out and be whatever their record is, three and 10 or whatever. I don't even know what they are. Like they don't want that. You know, they they, they want to win and and regardless of who's in or who's out, you know, they're missing Elijah Moore. They're missing a lot of, a lot of guys on their team and they're they're having a tough season. There's a lot of pride still in that locker room. They got a lot of good football players still they're and they're going to do anything and everything they can every Sunday, or Monday or Tuesday now or Thursday where we're playing games all the time now, but (laughs) any, any time they tee it up, you know, these guys are ultimate competitors. They want to win. You know, I've been part of a one of 15 team and damn it. Every time we left that locker room, you know, for all 15 of those losses, I was trying to win and expected to win. Now I knew we had, we were, you know, kind of handcuffed a little bit in some ways, talent wise and and coaching wise, but you know, you're still competitive. So that. Those things always have to go out the window. And, and re- whether you're the best team in the league, you know, whether you're the Chiefs or the Patriots or whoever you think is the best now, look, Arizona got their asses. What were they about Detroit?
1: Yeah, yes, they did. You know, you,
0: you, there, is a, there is a lot of pride and competitiveness in alpha males in NFL locker rooms. And you sleep if you want to. You don't get your butt embarrassed. Yeah, I think Coach Flo said the best what you're talking about, JT, is like, uh, they've got a bunch of guys out there that are playing their butts off no matter what. And, but they also play mm-hmm. well for their head coach, Salah. What do you think about – I mean, a lot of times yeah. you see guys that might shut it down on a the coach. These guys don't do that, and they showed it the first half. Yeah, and we saw you – know, we've seen and heard and read in the last few days about a team shutting down on a, on a, on a head coach, you know, where a coach loses his team. And I heard – I heard you on, I think with Channing earlier this week, talking about, you know, you, you felt like there was – there was a big part of that team in Jacksonville that, that – they kind of, you know, abandoned ship on, on uh, urban Meyer and they were done with it. And then we see how that plan panned out and urban's albeit still rich, but he's, he's, he's not, he's no longer working in Jacksonville, but you know, (laughs) I saw a group that played their butts off for Sala and you know, he's a good football coach. They got, they, they have some really good football players up there and they need more pieces. There's a lot of teams in this league that need pieces. And and now it's on their GM and and their coaching staff to, to get what they can out of this group and sort of regroup in the offseason and reload. But, again, you're, you're going to get everybody's best effort, whether you're the Miami Dolphins or the Detroit Lions or you're the New England Patriots. It doesn't matter. Just, you know, people always – you know, you always hear the cliches of, oh, any given Sunday, and people kind of laugh at it. You know, oh, it was a great movie, and maybe that's a good cliché. But, no, I'm telling you, in this league, there are a lot of – Alpha males with bad intentions on Sundays, and you better come ready to play. (laughs) Well, speaking of bad intentions and pass rush, JT, it's a topic that you and I like to discuss. I can remember for years, in the last 8 to 10 minutes, I would always jump in the elevator with Harvey, and we'd go down to the sideline, and for games that we had a lead, and we were protecting a lead, or we were way up, that was prime time for you. You talked about, like, you couldn't wait to get back on the field Pin your ears back and get after them. Did you see some of that today? And just talk about what that means to a pass rusher to just have those opportunities to know that every play you get to turn the corner and go.
1: And and how many zero yard sacks did you have in your career? This is a big point of contention. <laughs> yeah, we we're going to talk about the zero <laughs> yard sack in a minute for sure. Sorry, go ahead, JT.
0: Well, I'll, I'll answer the first part first. You know, it's obviously when you're playing with as a pass rusher when you're playing with a lead. It's you know, it, it depends on what the lead is. And, and today was a one possession game still. So. You can't be as reckless. You understand they're not going to run the ball with a certain amount of time on the clock, but we also need to keep them in bounds. So you're not playing as reckless as you could if you're playing for the you know the New England Patriots for 15 years. You're playing with you know the Peyton Manning Colts when they always had leads. You know and you just Dwight Freedy and Robert Mathis would just tee it up. You know for three quarters of the game. And yeah, I was jealous. I'm not gonna lie. I, I, I we can't about. tell. We can't tell. Doesn't still bother Yeah, exactly. Really. But no, it's so you know when you, you finally get that lead, and you realize that that running them running the ball is not going to beat you. Yeah, it's that's that's the best time for you, but it's exhausting. It's it can be frustrating. You know, we saw Van Ginkle get a get a personal foul because you know, you're two steps away, and like, dang, I, I did all the hard work, and now he's going to throw it just in the nick of time, and I'm trying to slip a little hit in. And nowadays, you can't even sneeze near a quarterback, or they put a mask on them and call personal fouls. So it's just you know, so you got to you got to understand that in those situations, you know, albeit frustrating, you just you, know, you you have to to know the situation in the game. But there's nothing like playing with the lead, boy. I'll tell you what, nothing like playing with the lead, especially a two, a two possession lead, a two score lead with you know eight minutes to go when you guys are getting in the. In the In the elevator coming down from the press box, you guys missed the the best part of the game. I don't understand why you do that, but whatever.
1: Hall of Famer Jason Taylor, we appreciate you, man, jumping on with us here. Looking forward to getting you back in the booth next week, JT. Thanks, man.
0: All All right, guys. Have a great one. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Take care, JT.